0: Thank you, John. Let me ask you to open in your Bible toward the back of the Bible, Revelation chapter 18. If you've been with us throughout this series, you, you know these are ver- verses that should be familiar to you. I'm going to be spending some time in these verses for this series um, that I'm calling Resurrection Kingdom. We're in part four of this series. Part one was a, a message that I called Babylon the Horse City. Where the Bible depicts the civilization and culture built by man as a whore, as a prostitute, as people who live and take the good things of God and selfishly do it only unto themselves and not for the one that they were made for, the one that the Bible says, the Bible describes the Lord Jesus as the bridegroom. Part two talked about the new earth and the eternal city of God and how God. Heaven is not just some uh, floating place out in the sky, but that God intends to renew the earth itself. He takes the earth and takes it into a new earth, which I'm calling a resurrection, a resurrection creation. That's why this series is called the resurrected, the resurrection kingdom. That the kingdom of God is not just God gets his way, but that he intends to renew all of the earth, and there's deep and profound implications for what that means and how we live here. That the kingdom is in it to break into this earth now, even though God will one day complete it and make it all new. That was part two. Part three, I started talking about some of the implications, the deeper implications of what the Bible talks about here in this resurrection kingdom. And I talked and I said that people were God's eternal treasure, and they were supposed to look at people not as means to our ends, but that as as full ends and as treasures in and of themselves, and today I'd like to give you a very important message and a very it's a kind of a big picture and a grand and important message that things tremendously missing in our society, and the theologians have called this the cultural mandate. They call this the cultural mandate. and um, so I'd like to read from these passages. Chapter 18 talks about the fall of Babylon, when God will judge man-centered, human worshiping fully, that we are self-sufficient to, unto ourselves, all the things that we do for ourselves that we don't think we need God for, human-centered civilization and culture, the city called Babylon. And then chapter 21, we're going to have a, a picture of what God calls his bride, what it will be when he renews it. And then, um, and then we'll get into this. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to just read. I'm going to just make some comments because I want you to see this passage and not just see it as a piece of, of a ancient religion, something that especially if you grew up in the church or even if you've been here in our church and been listening to these words multiple times now, you're like, okay, I know this. You don't know this. In many ways, I don't think we do know this. I'm going to make some comments as we go through this and help you, hopefully help you see it. Okay. So let's go to Revelation chapter 18, verse 17. So, is the word of God. In a single hour, all this wealth, the wealth of Babylon, has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. This is what God will do to Babylon. This is what he says to his people. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. And you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. Let me give you a 21st century version of that. And the electric guitars and the amps and the basses and the drums and the rock concerts and the jazz cafes and the iPods and the iTunes, they won't work anymore. And the great companies that build all the products, that build your iPhones and build your hybrids and your convertibles, they will not work anymore. The mills will not work anymore. And all the crafts, all the engineering that you do and all the software that you build and all the products that build all the skills that you have, they will all finally, God will put them to the end in Babylon. That's what's going to happen. So the Bible is saying. Verse 23. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. It's a violent passage, isn't it? It's a disturbing passage. You could feel that there is anger in God. There is actually a hatred of God against this city. And he says to his people, he is saying, I am for you. This city hates you. And you know, we live in a country where they're not maybe killing us, but there is clearly. It's in the universities. It's in the discourse of our society. There is a disdain. There's a disdain for the Bible. There's a disdain for people who say they're of God. You know? You can't say things to people because they're black, or you can't say things to them because they're Asian, but if they're Christian, you can say stuff about them, right? That's what it's like in our society. But you think that this stuff about there's the blood and of the prophets and the saints, it's not just something that happened a long time ago. It's happening today. You know, it's very relevant today. These verses are relevant today. I mean, the the latest news is that there's been political revolution in certain Arab countries. I know, I have a friend who's Egyptian, and she says that the new regime, the new Islamist regime, you know, they were Islamic before, but this is a new Islamic regime in Egypt. They are committing what she says is just straight-up genocide. The people who are Christians... They're, of a, they're not Arabs. They have a different ethnicity, and they're called cops. And just they're just going in there, and they're killing them because they're both one different ethnicity and because they're Christians, right? This is happening today. And what a profound word this must be for people who are suffering this way. I mean, for us, we get a, you know, kind of moderate, minor amount of persecution, if you can call it that, right? We get a little rejection, and we're even afraid of that rejection in our society, and we're nervous about that. But this is the judgment upon the city and the civilization of man-centered pride Babylon in the Bible. Let me jump ahead to chapter 21. I hope you really hear this. And, you know, I have preached on this multiple times in, in, in this church, and I never get tired of these verses, right? These verses are so compelling to me, and I hope they are compelling to you. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Do you notice it's not just a sky, a pie in the sky. It's a new earth. It will be something like we can see. All right? Something that's, it will be of course so different, but it will be something that we are familiar with. It's just not just t- uh, some totally unimaginable thing. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Not as a prostitute, but a bride. I noticed it's a city. It's, it's going to be, I imagine it'll be like the most glorious city you can possibly imagine. What's your favorite city that you've ever been to? It'll be nothing like the heavens that is yet to come. The, what we like to call heaven but it's really a new earth and it'll be a new city. God calls it a city. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Have you ever cried tears because you were sad? Have you ever cried and mourned out of profound disappointment, mourning out of loss, out of death? It will be gone one day in this city. Can you even imagine that? So I can't even really imagine it. I can just slightly imagine it. This is the city the resurrection kingdom that God promises. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. They're more trustworthy than the New York Times. They're more trustworthy than your textbooks that you got in the university. They're more trustworthy than the words of our wisest experts. These words are trustworthy and true. Verse 6, and he said to me, this is Jesus, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is Jesus. He's saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And let me just say a comment about this before I pray and then we'll dig more in, into this message. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet and omega is the last. It just means I am the A and I am the Z. And many people, when they hear this, they think Jesus is saying, I'm the one who started it and I'm the one who's going to end it. I'll be there at the beginning I'll be there at the end. It's a, like it's a chronological statement. That's not what he's saying, right? It includes the chronological beginning and the end, but what he's saying is I invented it. It was my purposes. It was my glory it was all my plan. I started it. I was the A. I was the Alpha. And you know what? It's all going to come toward me. It's all going to end in me. It's all for me. It's all purposed from me and for me. I am the Omega. It all comes to me. It all finds its fulfillment in me. If you, don't make, if you have a life and you don't understand that your life and your city and your culture and your skills and all that you do has to find its Omega and its fulfillment and its completion in Jesus All of all of the civilization and culture has to find its omega in Jesus, you will not understand what I'm going to today call successful life. You cannot have a successful life. Okay? Now let me before we get more into this message, let me pray. Let me pray for us. Lord, this is a big message. It is a big message. And we need to look at the beginning of the Bible, the Alpha, and the end of the Bible, the Omega. And help, help me, Lord, to just plant a seed that will grow and grow and grow and bear tremendous fruit in the minds and the hearts of your children today. Um, I am a babbling fool, but your scriptures are beautiful. And your spirit can take a babbling fool and teach deaf and dumb and blind people to hear and to talk and to see, and to sing your praises with their, all of their lives. Do that in our church today. Put the seed of that into our church today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I just told you this thing about how Jesus, it has to be all in Jesus. From Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus. Okay? That's the Alpha and the Omega. And today I'm going to raise this question. I'm going to teach you about something that's profoundly relevant to this. I mean, I'm kind of... I feel like I'm doing a shortcut for you today. The Bible talks about how Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. What we're going to do is we're looking at the end of the Bible. You know what you're looking at? You're getting a picture of the Omega. Jesus' intent, how it all completes in him. That's what you're getting a picture of. And, to, and I'm going to take you to the beginning. And we're going to talk about something very important that the theologians have called the cultural mandate from God. Right? We're going to talk about the cultural mandate so we can get understand this Alpha and the Omega. And then... I'm going to talk a little bit about the successful life. If you do not understand and have this cultural mandate in you and have alpha no, you can't, I'm telling you, you can't live a successful life. You will not have a successful life. Right? And then I'll close our message today with some words about mission and community. So let me ask you to go to the beginning of the Bible so we can take a picture, get some sense of the Alpha portion. When Jesus has an agenda at the beginning that he's putting on that what he intends for human life. And this is in Genesis chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, if you want to follow, it's Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at two verses, which I'm sure if you grew up in the church, you've heard before. If you grew up in the church, you've heard probably many, many times before. And But the, the implications of this are vast. And these two verses, there's a whole world of understanding in this. And, you know, we could write a whole... V- books and books and treatise on this, and I won't, you know, I won't do that to you today, but I'm going to teach you some key things out of Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, okay? So let me read that and, and give you some of the teaching on it. Verse 27. This is God created all the different creatures and you know, all the stars, and, and then, he gets the, then he gets to this. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves over the earth. They're like, okay, I'm I'm familiar with that passage, Pastor. Okay, let me just teach you a couple things. Verse 27. Verse 27 says that God made us in his image. There's so many important things that come out of that. Let me just say two. One is, you know, all the other creatures that are on the planet, you're not like them. (laughs) Of course, in some ways, you are like them. In the Babylonian civilization and education of our time, they think that they teach that human beings are basically like all the other creatures, you know? You're essentially a smarter version of a monkey, which is a smarter version of a lizard, which is a smarter version of something that came out of of a lake, of a virus, of a, of a primordial soup. Creatures are creatures. We're just wandering around the earth, and this is what it is. Right? And so they teach you in the schools today. They have a Genesis story, and it is a myth. Right? They have a Genesis religious myth, but they call it science. It's really interesting that they call it science, but it's really a religious myth. And they tell you that all the creatures are this way, and you're just kind of like, you just got smarter, but you're not fundamentally any different this verse absolutely says no. You are different. You are different because who you are is made in the image of God. God made like a mirror image. It's not him, but it's like him. And he placed that into us, and this is fundamental. We have a biology and so forth, but we're not like the rest of the creatures. You know, we're not even like the angels. We're not even just like the angels. The angels are not made in the image of God. We are. And so God has set us aside to have something of his divinity, something of his godness, so to speak. And it's supposed to be in us and it's supposed to come out of us. Even though you know, our physicality and so forth seems not a whole lot different necessarily than a lot of the other animals and creatures on this planet. But we are different. That's the first point. second point I'd like to make is this. Verse 20 says that we are made in the image of God. Verse 28 says Why? Verse 28 says we are commanded to have a lot of babies, okay? And go live everywhere. Be all over the earth. Fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion. That's the word it says. And rule over all the creatures. Rule over the earth. The, the theologians have a term for this. What is the human being, what was the intention of God when he put human beings on this planet, on this creation that he calls the earth? His intention was that we would rule it. But we would rule it like him. We would rule it the way God would want it ruled. We would rule it with God's, with God's wisdom, with God's righteousness, with his justice, with his mercy, with his creativity, with his beauty, with His, with his all, all the wonders of his attributes. And I'm not talking about the, you know, the divine. There are certain attributes that God has that only God has. Nobody else has, like omniscience or omnipotence. But there are attributes that God has placed in us, which make us like his image. We are supposed to have justice and wisdom and inventiveness and beauty. And all of that is supposed to be all over the earth. So that all of God's wondrousness and goodness is supposed to be all over the earth. That the glorious greatness of God would fill the earth that is the human calling, and we're supposed to go out and build this and, and, and make all this happen. You look at the dirt, and you, know, you don't just leave it as dirt. We form it and shape it and make it, and we form a garden. You know that's, that's a human activity, and you're putting order over it, but you're supposed to do it as God and put beauty into it. You know what engineering is? <laughs> engineering is to sh- understand all the different under- um, views of the world and then to Piece it together and to build something beautiful and glorious, which brings flourishing and blessing into the community. Yeah, you didn't know that was engineering. You just thought it was to produce a widget so that your company can stock price can go up, right? But that's not what it's supposed to be. Let me give you. We know what sounds are. You know, there are some people that God has placed His image in them, and they're supposed to create and form the sound in a different way to make beauty, and we call that music. Some of us we put words together and we make the sounds beautiful and we call that poetry. This is what we are commanded to do in verses 27 and 28. And when you fill all this stuff up, and we, as we get better and better about this and we start building on this and, and it starts to come around, we, the, we call this culture. And so the theologians say, what is the human being placed on the earth to do? He has a mandate from God to build culture throughout the whole earth. But it's a culture, it's a culture from God for God, where God is in it, and all his attributes ring of him, and it's beautiful all over the world. That is the mandate. And so many people think, okay, I'm going to just live my life, and then I'm going to believe in Jesus, and I'm going to be forgiven my sins, I'm going to try to be as nice a guy as I can, I'm going to live a comfortable life, and then hopefully I'll get to go to the good place and not go to the bad place. If that's what you think your whole life is going to be, then you can't have a successful life. Because the very fabric of your life is this. This is part of the alpha. This is part of the plan. You were designed to build culture and to have dominion and to shine God's image over the whole earth. You, your neighbor, your wife, your children, us, the we as human beings. That's what we're intended to do. And then when we do this, you know what happens? When culture starts to get advanced and advanced, what happens? A city comes about, and the city starts to produce more and more products and more and more ingenuity, and the culture starts getting greater and grander, and it gets richer and and more diverse and all these things. But that city and that culture and that civilization, insofar as it's all done for me, it's all done for us. It's about my self-interest. It's about my riches. It's about my comfort. It's about my pleasures. It's about my name and my glory and my success. That's all Babylon. It's all Babylonian. It's all horish. That's what the Bible is saying. Right? You know, um, how come it is, why is it that most of you guys live in this city? Huh? Remember that thing? Anybody here want to go live in, um, in the middle of South America? They got like, you know, luscious jungles out there. Anyone want to go live in the jungles of South America? Anybody here? <laughs> how, about, how about let's just go out and live out in the desert? You know, it's that, just flat and it's hot. And but, but for some reason, the world, I don't know if you know that the world is more and more... The, the great cities of the world are getting greater and greater in, popu- uh, in, in population. You know that? The world's moving toward the cities. Why do human beings flow toward the city. Because they instinctively, I mean, it's something deep within us. We are intended, we are—we want to be culture builders. We want to be in it. We want to experience it. We want to taste it. And you know what? That's why we're going to the cities. And of you guys ever read this uh, book called Walden when you were in high school or maybe in college, written by a famous American guy named Henry David Thoreau. So this guy Thoreau, whatever, a couple hundred years ago, he decides... I'm going to get away from the city and from the hustle and bustle of civilization, and I'm going to live by this pond called Walden. You can actually go there. You can You go to Massachusetts, go to Walden. And, and I'm just going to live at one with all of nature, and this is the real peaceful life. Right? Let me tell you something. Henry David Thoreau was an idiot. <laughs> He's wrong. He's wrong. The reason we don't do what he did, and it's interesting, people like that book. And every generation, people want to read that book, and they're like, oh, wouldn't that be so nice and be so peaceful? But he's wrong. Genesis 1 says he's wrong. We want to be toward the city, and it's not the city. At least you've got to have some community, and you're going to build something on this. I'm just going to live by the pond, and we're not going to have any music, and we're not going to have any supermarkets, and we're not going to have any gardens, We're not going to have any poetry and books. We're just going to live out here and be one with nature. No, right? That's not the way we want to live. He's like a hippie before we called him hippies. And you notice most people don't want to be hippies, right? Now, 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 let me be a little bit nicer, (laughs) okay? Let me be a little nicer. Thoreau isn't totally an idiot. He's actually got a real serious point. You know why he left the city to go to Walden, to go... Because you know what he's looking for? He's looking for something pure. He's looking for something that's untouched by all the greed, the enviousness, all the lies and deceit and the pettiness and the lusts and all the nastiness that's in the city. And you know what he's doing? He, the reason he's going to Walden Pond is because he hates Babylon. That's why. <laughs> that's why he's leaving it. And, 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 and every generation, we have these bohemian people, and some, you know, we call them hippies, you know. You know what? They, the reason is they, they, in one way or another, have found the culture, all the selfishness of the culture, all the self centeredness of all the greed and all the things that we do. They have not found this, like, this can't be it. And they want to go find something else. And so they leave. Right? And then every generation has its bohemians and their hippies. Um, It's just that they don't all write as well as Henry David Thoreau, all right? But on that end, there's something deep in the human heart. We know, even if you don't know Jesus, even if you haven't read the Bible, there's something deeply wrong and messed up about Babylon. And so people want to sometimes get away from it. You know, every society has sought to try to make their culture better. I mean, do you just want... the, The reason most of you don't have a picture tube TV with the cathode ray tube is because th- you want it to get better. How many of you are listening to cassettes on your Sony Walkman, right? And some of you, some of you guys are young. You're like, I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. What, what are you talking about? You'd never seen a phone where there's like a cord that comes out of it. You're like, what is that? A wire? That's so primitive, right? We we, we want to improve it because culture, go build culture, go subdue it, make it more and more flourishing and beautiful and glorious, right? I'm just giving you that, but in every way, we study psychology, we study culture, we study music and poetry and history and all these different kinds of things because we want the human person to get better. We have the engineering and the schools and all this because we want all the culture to get better, but there's a set of people that say, oh man, this is terrible, and then they want to leave. Those are the bohemians, and one, on one level, I'm telling you, they are right. On another level, I'm saying they're fools. Right? Because every time we try to make it better, you know what you're doing? You're just trying to, try to make a new form of Babylon. When Henry David Thoreau left, and then all, we're going to have a hippie little commune. You know, you know what you're doing? You just have a, a, new, a different version of Babylon. You're just starting it all over again. But if there's no God in it, if there's no Jesus and Alpha Omega, and His glory and the image of God being renewed in us it's just another Babylon. And there's a term for that um, among historians, and they call that utopia. Every utopian dream and every utopian attempt—they've all failed. They've all failed. And let me tell you something. It doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. They're both running utopian versions. It's just that the right-wingers want to have some, some, some religion, and they want, they believe in the free market. The left-wingers believe that if we have enough you know, levers up in the government and use the power, we can fix it all. It's still both Babylonian because there's now Jesus in it. There's no power of the Alpha and the Omega. And that's not something you can get from the government. You can only get from the Holy Spirit, and it's inside out, not outside in. Okay. Let me shift a little bit. Let me talk about the successful life. Now, if you've been in this church for a little while, you know, you've already heard me give the spiel, but I'm going to give it again, okay? (laughs) Because you need it again, right? We're all Americans here, and Americans believe in the Babylonian dream. We, call it, we just call it the American dream, <laughs> right? But the American dream is a Babylonian dream. Most of you, what you think of the successful life has very little Jesus in it. It doesn't have Jesus as the grand peak and of the goal and of the, of the omega in it. Jesus is like a little appetizer or a little sprinkle on the side, for you, you know, and for me, for us here in America, the reason this country is so great is because we can live our dreams. And what does living our dreams mean? It means we can go to a school and we can go and learn skills that we're good at. That's what the university is today. The university is the place where to find out where you're good at. And so you can figure out what your dreams can be. It's like a dream-making factory. That's what the university is today. And then... The career. We don't call it a job and we don't call it work. We call it a career. What is a career? A career is the thing that you do that you're good at that will fulfill you. It'll make your name. It'll make you rich. It'll make you successful. It'll make you somebody. It's about you. Fulfill your dreams. And then your 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 family, your wife and your kids or your husband and your kids, is it really What's it, what's it have to do with Jesus? <laughs> you can have a wife, you can have a husband, you can have kids, and it doesn't have, to have anything to do with Jesus, does it? Does it have anything to do with a new Jerusalem and a city? It just has to do with you. I marry the person that I'm in love with, that will fulfill me. They'll be the hottest, the most handsome, the sexiest woman that I can get that will marry me, that will fulfill all my needs, that will meet all me emotionally, and then I'll be happy. And all my children, who here thinks I'm going to have children and they'll be born with some kind of physical ailment? I will have children and they're going to do pot and drop out of school. I'll have children and they're going to have a learning disability. I'll have children and they're going to hate Jesus. I'll have children and they're going to hate me. Who thinks like that? But you know what? That's that's real life. Instead, The dream is, I will marry the person I'm in love with, and they're pretty, so my kids will be pretty. And they will be perfect, and they will love the things that I love, and they're going to go to 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 a really good school, because they're going to be smart, like I'm smart. And they're going to be successful, like I want them to be successful. And then this will be the successful life when we get all this stuff, right? But where in the Bible does it say any of this? It's not in the beginning, it's not in the end, I'm telling you, it's not in the middle. None of it is this. This is all Babylonian crap, quite frankly. And insofar as this is in your mind, you are not a citizen of God's city. You're more like a citizen of the Babylonian city, and you will cry when Revelation 18 happens instead of rejoice because you are a citizen of God's forever resurrection city. Oh, this is cutting home now, right? Right. You know, the thing that we consider the successful life in America, we have churches. Churches are basically little shops, and we peddle religion. We sell religion. You, know, you go to the, iTunes, the, the, um, the Apple store, and they'll sell you an iPhone smartphone, and it's snazzy. Churches in America are here to sell you religion. You do your American dream. But you need a little religion, right? You need a little better behavior. You need a little, some comfort from God. So the churches will do that for you. And you know why Americans hate it when we say it needs to be about Jesus, right? Why the people who don't believe in Jesus hate it? Because when they look at the Christians, they're all just running the same game. We're all just doing the American dream. You're like, why you? Your life is any different than mine? How can you tell me that your thing? Because you got Jesus, you're going to go to heaven, and I'm going to go to hell, and I'm on a path toward hell, but your life is all exactly the same. You just do your thing, and I just do my thing. Jesus is just a little sprinkle for you, and if I go find my thing somehow, how is it different? That's why people feel tremendously that it is their right to be angry with these really rude and stupid people called Christians by this message about Jesus and they say that they have the truth, right? Do you know any friends who feel that way? Maybe you feel that way. And let me say something. I think in some ways that the non-Christians have a right to feel this way about us. Why? Because we're not living the cultural mandate. We're living the Babylonian American dream. Our life is supposed to be building a culture and a city it's all about Jesus. That the reason I go to work, the Christian is, will you come here? It's not just, I'm going to get some religion, I'm going to believe in Jesus, and I'm going to try to get my act together and then try to be a better person. No. The full totality of your life, if you want a successful life as the way the Bible describes it, Jesus has to own all of you. He has to own your business. He has to own your plans. He has to own your citizenship. That's why the Christian, we do marriage differently. That's why we look at sex differently. We look at career differently. We look at education differently. We look at family differently. We look at citizenship differently. We look at nation differently. right? That's why you can't really quite be comfortable being a Democrat or a Republican because you're really a part of a different citizenship. And I'm not saying you can't be in one of those parties. right? And I'm not saying that you can't, you know, because if you say, oh, well, let's just leave it all and then go do something else, then we'll just do a different kind of Babylonianism. I think the Amish are just doing a different kind of Babylonianism, right? We're to be in Babylon, but really citizens of a different city and propagating and living a culture that's really eternal from a different city. And so that when the, when the non-Christians look at us, they are like, man, you guys are weird. Some of what you do is offensive to me, but some of what you do, Is beautiful to me. And you know why it's beautiful to them? Because they're human. And they know that the image of God in us is touching the image of God in them. But they just don't know where it's from. Because we are going to the Omega, Jesus. Let me close my message with um, something about mission and community. The theologians call it cultural mandate right? Cultural mandate. But really, it should just be called mission. Most of the time, when you hear the word mission, you think mission means go out and tell people about Jesus and then get them religious. No, right? The mandate, the mission is to let Jesus own all of you, to let him renew his image of what it means to be a human being, to be a divine person in you, and then let it be cover the whole earth. You know, just, just give you a quick one little example about this. You know, most some of you think, well, I'm gonna marry the, the person of my dreams, and it's gonna be all wonderful and romantic, and we're gonna have lovey dovey. You know what? You know what the Bible says? You marry a person, and this person's gonna sin against you. And then you're gonna sin against them. And you you're gonna find out, you're gonna find out that you're a Babylonian rat. And then you're gonna find out, I need Jesus. I need his power and his grace. And then let his image of divinity come out in me. And then I can love my wife. Not because she's there all to fulfill me. You know who fulfills you? Jesus. (laughs) The person who's going to fulfill you is not your wife or your your husband. Because when you marry them, guess what? They're going to sin against you. And you're going to be like, sucks. (laughs) That's what it's going to be like. The person who fulfills you is Jesus. See, that's how... That's how the Christian is supposed to think about marriage. Isn't it so weird? It's so weird. But if you actually follow it, it'll become beautiful. And your neighbors will notice. That's mission. Isn't that weird? That's the cultural mandate. It's a form of mission to live your marriage according to Jesus, for Jesus, for his city. It's actually weirdly a form of mission. Okay? Let me talk about community. Close this message. Um, in World War II, I, I, I've read about this, okay? In World War II, the countries, you know, I mean, it's like all-out war with other countries. The whole country, their, their economics, their factories, you know, their, the way that they are, are saving metals and all this stuff, it's like the whole country is in unity. It's been said that in England that the whole nation had a weird experience during World War II, that people would go to work. They would go to their factories, or they would volunteer, and they would go into the neighborhoods, and they had this strange experience at the work, and the things that they did, it was more than just for their own selfish agenda. It, wasn't like it, was, just for, it was something for bigger and something greater than themselves, to be a part of a, a community that had a greater mandate. And now think about this. The English men and women who are of that generation from World War II, they experienced the happiness from work, from going to work and doing the things they're doing as part of their culture, as part of their city, okay? And let me tell you something about what London was like. It was bombed to heck. The Germans just bombed the heck out of London. The place was war-torn. You know how many British sons died In World War II, and how the the country must have been poor, and there must have been, how many families must have been where they said, yep, my brother died, my uncle died, or my uncle came back and his arm was blown off, and yet the people rallied together under a unified cause, which was bigger than their own selfish little dream, and when they would go to work and they would all rally together on this, they experienced a form of happiness, and the great weird irony behind this is like the war ended and then it became peace and then everyone went back to being selfish all over again and then the happiness was over. The happiness to go to work and build some culture was like, you know, no, they weren't happy about it. But for that short period of time, during a devastating and horrible period of their history, they experienced a weird form of happiness to do something together bigger than themselves. Let me tell you something. That little experience that they had is like a little taste of what it's like When you live in the city and you're giving yourself to something that's worthy of your life and it's greater than yourself. When you're living in a mission that's worthy. When you're living in a mandate in a community and we're all doing it together. You're actually doing this thing together. It's a beautiful thing. You're not just doing it by yourself and you're just a weird religious goofball on the corner and everybody else is like they think you're stupid. right? But that you are part of a grand wonderful mission and people know this is worthy of our life and the english experienced that in this little way in world war ii come on pastor that was like that was a long time ago you know that doesn't really happen this is just the way we are now and i don't know if we can be like the way you're talking can we be happy to be a part of a counterculture in a city within the city the city of the Jerusalem within the city of Babylon as you're talking about, can that actually happen? Ah. Alright. You're gonna think this is so sneaky. Like right toward the end of the sermon, the pastor's gonna give a plug for bishop. <laughs> Let me tell you a little something. I I and a few other of us in the English ministry went to Bishop last year to do this ministry for the Paiute Indians. And we had a weird experience. We were there for about one week. There's about 80 of us. It's not comfortable. Many of us are sleeping on the floor. Try sleeping on the floor night after night. It's like your back will hurt. We're not eating the most comfortable food. And Bishop as a town is actually a nice resort town, but the reservation itself is poor. And we were all there together. And you know what? We were happy. It's really weird. And I saw something extraordinary there. I came into this church, and when I came to this church, the youth group in our church, you know, just in, they were in shambles. These kids were shallow and selfish and cynical, and they were not very happy about church and Jesus or anything, right? We took a team of those kids to bishop. I saw kids that were here, self-absorbed and self-centered the way so many teenagers are today. And in that week, I watched them sacrifice and love and give passion and gladness to reach out to young, poor, orphaned, and sometimes like illegitimate children that don't know the Lord, that were Paiute Indians. And they did it with great gladness and joy and happiness for one week. See, it's not, it's not like something long ago and it doesn't happen. It still happens. It still happens. And the only way it happens is when you fix your eyes on Him. He set aside all His comforts and all His prerogatives, and He came down to give it to us so that we would give it back to Him. That's what the Bible teaches. This is the movement of the Alpha to the Omega. God will come down to a people that are wretched, we're whores in our hearts. Selfish and living our own little dreams and we don't care about the agenda of the world. Cultural mandate, glory and shalom and beauty to the rest of the world, whatever. As long as I get mine, that's the way we are. To us, a horse people, God came down, shed his blood, set aside his majesty, and then gave us this plan. <laughs> I don't know why he would give us this assignment. I wouldn't, if I'm God, I sure as heck wouldn't give these rats this assignment this mission, this tremendous privilege, this mandate, and put his image in us, and he did. And he renewed us by his blood, and he's building in us a city. You know, I know this is a big message, and like, walk out here, what can I do? Right? There's no one thing to do, but we can start, we can begin to just think. And it needs a lot of different conversations and a lot of different experiences that we can bit by bit It's going to be a life repentance of this selfish, individualistic, me-centered, dream Babylonian life and to repent of that and lay that on the altar and bit by bit we can come together and be a family more than just our atomistic individual selves and God, in in the name of Jesus, be our king and form a tremendous shalom and power that the world goes, what is going on? over there in San Jose. What the heck is that? That is weird. I kind of hate what they when they talk about Jesus, it really bothers me, but I also am attracted to it. <laughs> Can't help but be attracted to it. And when we're doing that, then we're being Jerusalem. Drawing the people to the Lord who is the omega. Let's go to the table of the Lord. Lord God. Oh. it's It's a big message. It's a hard message. We don't even know where to begin. How do we even begin to repent, Lord? But just will you take this this crazy word of how you are Alpha and Omega, and you will fill out. And, the, and your image will shine out in us and through us as we fulfill the cultural mandate to build your city, Lord, where you are king and where, where you are omega. Lord, will you drop this seed of this truth into our hearts and our minds today and will you let that seed grow and bear fruit in ways that we can't even imagine. It will spill out into Bishop. You'll spill out into San Jose. And you'll do something great. In us. So we go to your table today. May we eat this truth. And you would change us from the inside out, as only you can do. In Jesus' name.